Hi, my name is Heather Shorin Yeruso, and this is the Spark Zen Podcast. Thank you for listening. Today, I have the great pleasure of being in conversation with Professor Stephen Hine, the foremost expert on Eihei Dogen Zenji, the 13th century founder of Soto Zen in Japan. He is a professor at Florida International University, where he specializes in Japanese religions, East Asian Buddhism, and the history and thought of Zen. He is the author of 35 monographs and edited volumes. A few of these include Dogen and Soto Zen, From Chinese Chan to Japanese Zen, and Dogen and the Koan Tradition. The first time Professor Hine and I met was at Tassajara Zen Mountain Center about six years ago when he offered classes on Dogen to the summer students. Thank you, Stephen, for being my guest. Thank you. Great to be here today. So, Stephen, as you know, in the Zen tradition, when we have a new student entering the monastery, they offer a way seeking mind talk, essentially, the causes and conditions that brought them to the practice of Zen. I would love for you to highlight how your journey began. How did you become interested in Dogen and Zen? It's always a great question. And when I look at some colleagues in, in certain kind of exotic fields, we could say for Americana, let's say they teach African religions or, or Middle Eastern studies. A lot of times they had an experience in childhood where they lived for a year in that region because of something their parents were did, did or they had some particular connection. For me, the connection was primarily through culture that was appropriating into America when I grew up in the 1950s and 60s. Looking back, you realize how much Zen influence was filtering in. I didn't always know it was Zen with the, with the beat poets, for example, folk music, jazz, John Cage. I mean, other things that have become objects of study at that time were kind of these spontaneous expressions of the culture where Japanese ideas, Japanese culture, and especially Zen were getting disseminated without us necessarily recognizing what it was. So I had that fascination going in the back of my mind. But I think when I started college and my father was an MD and my brother was a, had an MD and became a psychiatrist and I was expected, he filled out my first semester curriculum card with all this pre-med stuff and I changed it all to Sanskrit and Asian religions. And my original intention was to follow that path, I guess, of, of early Buddhism. But I also took a course on Japanese poetry that fascinated me. So I had that angle going. And I, I also just appreciated kind of larger Western intellectual trends, Nietzsche and, and Schopenhauer and others who were influenced by Buddhism in the 19th century. And my favorite author at the time was Franz Kafka, who I, I don't know if he had specific Asian influences, but had a kind of Asian flavor in highlighting the paradoxes of human existence. And I kind of wanted to embrace all of that. I was a little unclear what my path would be when I graduated college, but I point out in that latest book on Dogen, Japan's original Zen uh, teacher, that I had a very fortuitous experience because our Japanese literature professor pointed out that the famous author Kawabata, famous Japanese author, had won the Nobel Prize in 1968. And that was just kind of a big event for Japanese cultural studies in America at that time. And uh, a few months later, a bilingual edition appeared of Kawabata's Nobel Prize lecture. And it starts out with a poem by Dogen. 
And then you get into the 70s. The 70s was the Dogen time. Rinzai Zen had been you know, promulgated in U.S. through Suzuki and other figures. But all of a sudden, we had Heejin Kim and Masao Abe and many other important figures that the listeners are probably familiar with, writing books and, and doing translations of, of Dogen in the 1970s. And it was just so fascinating. I try to pick them up. In those days, you had to scurry around to different bookstores to try to find them. And I had my collection going. And as I was continuing to study classical Chinese and, and Japanese, I started ordering books from Japan. I got very interested in, in Dogen's uh, Japanese poetry and how to translate that. And I was doing research in Japan. And, and the rest, as they say, is kind of history. Stephen, all those years ago, when we met at Tasahara, you had relayed to me while we were sitting having tea in the Founders Hall, the Kaisando, about how you came to a crossroads of your study of Dogen when you were living in Japan in the 1980s. It was really a wonderful surprise for me to find that in your introductory material in your most recent book. So if you could talk a little bit about that mystical experience that served as a, how, how would you say how it served for you? How did it affect your life right. to have that mystical experience? And why did you decide to mention it? Since I don't often hear scholars like yourself discussing the mystical. Yeah, it took me a while to want to get it out in the open. And, and our conversation helped to uh, prod me in that direction. So I appreciated that uh, chance. And then when I was talking to the uh, editors at Shambhala about this book on Dogen, they said, okay, in this series, which is on Buddhist masters, their instructions were, we want a preface where you get personal, where you do the deep dive into like, why are you committed to this? And I, so it all came together and I put it in the book. It was a very deep uh, recession that hit in the late 70s, and there was a glut in the job market in the academic world because of a super amount of hiring in the mid-60s. And those people weren't going to be retiring until about 1990. And so job market was paper thin in academic world in general. But I was able to get a Fulbright and, and get some other funding to spend some time in Japan, and I was doing this project that was incredible to me about Dogen and Dogen's poetry. And I was learning so much. I mean, it was like this magical scroll was unfurled before me about the, the roots of understanding Dogen's history and texts and writing and thought. I mean, so much became apparent to me in those years that I'm still kind of working with as inspiration. But I knew that when I got back to America, I might not be able to continue in the academic world. And staying in Japan had its rough spots and my my wife was not always uh, that happy about uh, my spending hours and hours just hunched over these medieval Japanese texts and and um, time going by and so forth and so on. So yeah, it was a kind of a crossroads because I, I seriously contemplated alternative job possibilities. But what happened was that one one night and we were living in an old wood, style house with so that the heating that you could muster was kind of meager in the cold winter days and kind of forced you to go beyond cold and heat as in the famous koan right and force you to just deal with the elements as they are and and so that i i kind of appreciated that experience and so but i was so distraught in some in some ways and then i had this uh, vision of 
what I've called to call the Soto Angels, and these were two kind of mid-level manager monks, I call them. It wasn't Dogen or one of the luminary figures you read about. It was kind of two kind of bureaucratic clerics appearing before me on lotus leaves. Kind of two of them, I, I kind of gaze up. And it's a lot like what they talk about in the blues, except there, one version in the blues is that you make a deal with the devil to become the, a great guitarist. But I, I, I've done some research on the blues for other purposes, and I think it's it's a more positive saying there because it, it's kind of rooted in African mythology. And you face a crossroads. We all face crossroads. Koans are often about crossroads. Cutting the cat is like, you know, one of the major examples, like you hold up the cat, what happens with it? I was holding up my whole life and my whole interest and love for this and knew that this was like my main talent, but would I be able to sustain it? And we made a deal. <laughs> and I had to be very patient. I, had, I questioned the deal for many times, but let me just say it's kind of worked out that way. And, you know, I've had other appearances of the Soto Angels. Somebody said to me recently, Oh, do they come to you early in the morning when you're working or when do they? I said, no, no, it's it's like not that they just hang around me all the time. Thank you for conveying that story. When we were meeting in the Kaisando, when you told me that story from my Zen monastic point of view, I thought that made you more legit in my eyes. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> because yeah. I mean, legit, because there does seem to be a miss interpretation or misunderstanding of Dogen saying, don't, don't study the sutras, right? right. Zazen Shikintaza is the front gate of the Dharma. Right. And feels a little bit like that pendulum is swung that way for a long time mm -hmm. in this tradition. Again, my sliver of the sky experience. Right. So that often scholastics like yourself are not seen as, why don't you take the Dharma seat? Because right. you don't necessarily practice Shikintaza. Right. Right. Um, but I know from my own personal emails with you, like when I emailed you about Dogen and fire, you, <laughs> you channel Dogen through those emails. You eat, breathe, and sleep yeah. Dogen. When you relayed this mystical experience, I was like, wow, okay, I'm on board with, with Stephen Hine as the mystical scholar, which is often how Dogen's referred to, right? As this mystical realist. Yeah, I think, right. The, the word mystical in the academic world, unfortunately, you know, has become one of those kind of taboo words when you apply it to Zen, uh, because it sounds like something visionary and Zen is not necessarily visionary. And, and what I experienced, I talked about was visionary, but I think I totally agree with you and that, hey, you're, you're talking about an experience where you're kind of seeing into something, seeing through something, reading between the lines quality. Well, you said that you made a deal with the Soto Angels, the mid-level manager monks on their lotus leaves. What was that deal? And then how have they subsequently shown up in your life again? It was kind of a very practical deal because I knew I was going back to this going back to the early 80s was a very, very difficult job market in higher education, especially in a relatively obscure field like Asian thought, Asian religions. In addition to that, my wife and I had some very deeply personal reasons why we wanted to stay in our hometown of Philadelphia because of some family issues that were going on. And how do you balance that with the bad job market to get a job anywhere in the country? And so I had to think through all these things 
And, and the deal was like, hey, if I, if I stuck sincerely with, with Dogen studies, eventually it would uh, lead to good enough career opportunities that I would be happy with it. The implication was you'll, you'll be happy with your life eventually. But because of obstacles that came up over those years, it was still a struggle. And I, I had to question it. But eventually it was the case. And then other things happened. One of the interesting points, which occurred right around, I think it might have been a year before we, we talked to Tassahara, was that I was giving a lecture at the University of Chicago. And at that time, I had gotten very much involved in the precursors to Dogen in Chinese Zen, especially the Blue Cliff Record and other of the Chinese writings, because a lot of Dogen's writings are in a kind of hybrid Chinese form. He doesn't write pure Japanese. He's not readable in his own Japanese by modern Japanese, and he doesn't write pure Chinese either. So you have to kind of piece together the hybrid form of it from, from that era. And, and so at some point, and I ha- there were also some auspicious circumstances that helped me in that direction, I realized to myself, like I had to immerse myself in the material that Dogen was influenced by to really understand what he was saying. And so I kind of did that consciously and subconsciously for several years. And I was on a shuttle bus to the airport coming back from University of Chicago. And there they were, the Soto Angels. And they said, all these Chinese studies that you've been doing, that's going to lead you back to Dogen. And next thing I knew, several opportunities came right up. And in 2020, I was able to publish two books the way the timing worked out, back-to-back, on Shobo Genzo. Somewhere you have those Soto Zen angels who are writing your books for you because you're so prolific. I'm wondering if you have them tethered somewhere to their lotus leaves and producing producing all these books <laughs> for you. Some people have said to me, and I have given a couple of lectures on this, write a book about writing books. What's the key to writing? I, and I'm not a creative writer. I used to want to be a creative writer. I used to want to be Jack Kerouac 2.0 back in, the, back in the day. If we reframe your question a little bit as what's the key to getting that writing done, right? And that, kind of pumping it out there. There's a factor which we could call the zone. When you get in that level, of, a certain level of concentration, whatever contributes to that, and obviously meditation is one of the factors that, that can and does, that you can be more productive in a short amount of time. So it's, it's trying to facilitate that, that level of concentration. And for me, uh, it's waking up early and it's a certain discipline to just get up and, and you're at it and there's no distractions. The sunlight starts coming up and kind of symbolizes a daily sense of, of awakening. I would like to hear more about how immersing yourself in Dogen's poetry and prose, his images and all the reflections that people have had about Dogen over the decades and decades. I'm curious how that has affected your practical life. And in particular, I'm going to uh, give you this quote from the Genjo Koan. And I'd love for you to frame your response with this phrase in mind. While sailing along by using the vessel's rudder and pole, I do not exist apart from the boat and the boat functions as a vehicle because I am riding in it. At just such a moment, life makes me what I am. 
and my activity fulfills the life of all things that contribute to that fleeting instant of the boat's movement. How does that speak to you? And what's the, what is the relevancy of that for people who communicate on Zoom, who have cell phones and Reddit and TikTok and Netflix and everything else? Why should we pay attention to this mystical realist from medieval Japan? Good, very, very good. Okay. So that, that forces, in a good way, a reflection on a number of different topics. So let me try to grab some of those ideas going through my mind very quickly. One thing, that passage is very similar to another fascicle of Shobogenzo, Zenki, which is usually translated total activity or total dynamism. And it also talks about the boat. My small part in rowing this boat or steering this boat is connecting me with the entire universe and the universe is manifested through my activity with that boat at that moment. I think both passages are quite similar there. In the Genjo Koan, there's another passage that I've been particularly interested in recently where he says, when we ride the boat out to sea, there's a certain moment where we realize we can't see the land anymore. And in Japanese, it's a term, yamanaki kaichu which means we're in the middle of the water and there's no more mountains. I think by mountains, what he means is like the last trace of land has gone because the mountains are high and you'd be able to still see them. But when you get past the horizon where there's nothing else to see, we're in that new realm. And I think that was a kind of autobiographical quality for Dogen because it referred to his trip to China, I think, my speculation that he had been in waterways and inland waterways in Japan, probably, but you could always see the mountains. And then all of a sudden he's going on this bigger trip to China and, and he was at his own crossroads. I mean, he had left Japan. He, he was not satisfied there. He didn't know what was going to happen in, in China. It was hard for a foreigner to succeed in China. He did run into a lot of obstacles there. And so One aspect of the sea, of of being in that boat situation is to connect you with the universe. But another aspect is you feel that disconnection because your frame of reference is gone. And he says, the first thing you think of is that the ocean must be a circle. And you know, it's not a circle, but you can't convince yourself of that when you're looking around and you see the circle. And then he, he talks about, he uses kind of a Yogacara Buddhist metaphor of like, we have to realize that dragons will see the ocean one way and fish see it another way, and and you get into that relativity. How have Dogen's teachings been a touchstone for your life? How has it helped you? Are there any practical examples? Well, yes. Uh, Great question, again. And so to go back to what I was saying, there's that disconnection-connection aspect of experience. And I, I think uh, in Zen, when Dogen said he had the doubt about the concept of original enlightenment at a certain point, and, and he had other periods where he, he himself felt like something was wrong, something was missing, it, it, was, it was kind of incomplete, and he, he, moved on, he moved on that path of continuous improvement, so to speak. But he also uses the phrase uh, continuous mistake. It's a very interesting phrase, mistake upon mistake which implies the making the right mistake. So we know we, we're gonna be limited in some ways, but we try to maximize, again, what, uh, what our strengths are. And for Dogen, it was being a wordsmith. He, he was able to see puns in the, in the two languages, see word plays, see connections between ordinary speech 
as he does with the t- concept of being time or for the time being, which is just the simple word sometimes. And he, he would just look at ordinary things. And out of that, it would pop out these very high-minded ideas. I mean, I think that's one, one of the things about Dogen that people talk about, and, and, and it's a stereotype that's true, is that he can take any word and turn it into some high-minded philosophical idea, or he can take any high-minded philosophical idea and try to strip it down and relate it back to like ordinary things we say and do. So what Dogen is trying to get across is like, any thought that's in our mind, this is particularly true, I think, in the fascicle Zazen Shin on the, the um, acupuncture point for meditation or thinking of meditation as kind of an applying acupuncture points is that we're always in a state of what he calls non-thinking, which doesn't mean a termination of thinking, but it's that liminal subliminal realm where all these free associations and all these connections are being made. And yet we know we're only getting this partial glimpse. So let's take what we can and express it. So I think uh, that's what I've tried to do is like, okay, if you can express part of it, if you can express some of it, you can express it in your own way. Even if you only get part of the thing, do it, get it down, type it into the computer, save it, <laughs> work with it later, make use of it, keep those insights going, drive yourself ahead to, to the next point. And another aspect of it for me in translating and, and, and writing and, and when I, when I talk to people or students about writing is what you read back. You got to do a lot of editing. What you read back, it's got to make sense in English. If it, if it sounds awkward, if it's not hundred percent clear to an English reader, then you're probably missing something because we got to assume that those geniuses made sense. Dogen in his own way was always making some degree of sense. So use that as a, as a tool for editing. So learning about Dogen's ingenious uses of language and related to everyday non-thinking, maybe that's, maybe I can coin a new term there. So during the COVID, when we're ordering uh, takeout food or when we're trying to amuse yourself one too many times with a Netflix TV uh, detective movie, any of those things can trigger off in our minds some more profound thought process and some more profound self-expression that's that's a continuous mistake leading us beyond mistakes. We had back then in person chatted a little bit about the no longer being able to see the shore or the mountains as an expression of this casting off body mind, right? Mm-hmm. The, this lack of reference. There's no longer a self-centric view right. of the world when I'm in the right. middle of the boat in the middle of the ocean. Right. Could you speak? Could you speak about that? What's wonderful, as, as you know, and profound about Dogen is his ability to speak from this non-dual experience embodiment, and and just yeah. re- convey it in a way that's poetic and mysterious and enigmatic, because he's speaking from that seems to me like a very profound embodied Kensho Satori. So many of these experiences are double-edged, double-edged swords that can you know, get, bring to life or kill, but the, even the killing can be a positive effect if it's killing attachment or, or ignorance. And so, yeah, the being out to sea is, is a disconnection, but it's a disconnection that allows you to sever the emotional attachment to ego. And therefore it's a form of casting off, which is, which is one translation or, or a dropping off uh, body mind. And the Japanese term for that is uh, datsuraku, 
Both are interesting because they refer to kind of the molting of, of the skin of, of a snake or, the, or what, a, what a, a caterpillar does or like falling leaves. And so they, bo both words and as a compound, it kind of conjures all these natural images where falling away is part of the seasonal cycles or part of the cycles of life that we understand. Our sense of casting off body-mind is it can be a daily cycle, a momentary cycle, and, and renewed from time, to, you know, time and again as we go on. So it, it has that very rich flavor to it. And, you know, in the 1960s, that term was used for a college dropout. If somebody's uh, uh, child had, had dropped out, what we call dropouts in the U.S., that was called a, a Datsuraksha, a person who dropped out. So these words have had many, many meanings historically and over the years. Mistake after mistake, that was those four characters. That was the title of a recent Chinese movie that was kind of a simple kind of romance. And the idea was like some, some person who had been jilted a couple of times in their relationships, could they find the right person. And so it, it becomes a completely different type of expression, but yet we can still see how Dogen could look at those, any of those expressions and find that deeper meaning. I'm actually curious uh, because we started with your vision of the Soto angels. Mm -hmm. Could you speak about Dogen's mysticism? And I was reading one of your older books, Opening a Mountain, the koans of the Zen masters and supernatural elements. And this has also been on my mind because I, I just had a wonderful conversation with Zenju Earthland Manuel, whose new book came out, The Shamanic Bones of Zen. Right, right. And it's interesting to me. I'm just thinking about this now. Mm -hmm. There's this anti-intellectual strain that seems to still run through Zen, but that mm -hmm. doesn't mean that we've picked up the mystical, supernatural, shamanic roots yet. Mm -hmm. I don't want to make too much of, oh, it's anti-intellectual, but yeah. there's a, at least a slight anti-intellectualism, a focus on Shikintaza. And yet that Shikintaza also seems to have, we've seemed to have jettisoned that mystical aspect of Zen. And Buddha was a yogic master. The milieu of where he was born and started teaching it seems to me, how could he not have been a yogic master? The mystical element is celebrated by the yogis and by Hinduism. And yet here we haven't picked up that mysticism and that shamanistic perspective or roots or bones, as Zenju says. Right. Yeah, uh, good. I mean, I think um, there's the intellectualism, the anti-intellectualism, the meditation is kind of a third way that allows you to non-think your way through both sides. And, and then there's the kind of super, if we call it supernaturalism or mythical element that is, is very strongly present. And that's kind of the, the Soto angels, the Dogen himself have Soto angels. And uh, I know one thing Kaz Tanahashi has pointed out is that when he was giving the, the lectures and sermons that became uh, Shobo Genzo, you know, it was assumed that, that present in the audience were bodhisattvas and spirits that were you know, that we're gathering together as well. We have to keep that in mind. Maybe a good word to use is kind of an auspicious element. And in, in, in the book, Opening a Mountain, I talked, I used the term a little bit, kind of natural signatures. In other words, when nature seems to be writ large with a symbol for what's happening in the state of mind of a particular person or a particular group engaged in whatever activity, including meditation and monastic activities.
the smell of the spring blossoms enhances the awakening experience that somebody is having and, and, and vice versa. So th there's that kind of element. Now, Dogen does talk of what we could, I think, fairly clear, you know, clearly say are supernatural experiences, especially at Aheji. Five colored clouds in the sky. And that was something he said, you're not going to see it anywhere else in Japan. It happens in China, at Mount Tendai in China. Doesn't happen in Japan, but hey, folks, you can see it here. Hearing the, the, the resounding sound in the uh, mountain landscape of a temple bell, even though it has not been struck, but just kind of spontaneously hearing that kind of magical sound. He talks about uh, that kind of experience. He talks about the 16 Arhats, the 16 Lakhan, who emanate light and appear during a Shikantaza session that they were having at Heiji. And so the, I, I talk about this in, in the new book. I think I, I maybe I list them all together in one spot. There's like five or six of these very, you know, enticing kind of sounding kind of experiences. I think it's uh, simple, but I think also a clear thing to say is like, hey, it was a different worldview back then. That back then was a worldview where you took for granted these, these kinds of experiences were taking place. As you're saying this, what what comes up for me, and you mentioned this in the beginning of your, your most recent book, the synesthesia. Yeah. And, and I'm looking at the harmony of difference and equality, right? The Sandokai, yeah. this phrase yeah. of all the objects of the senses interact and yet do right. not. Interacting brings involvement. Otherwise, each keeps its place. Mm -hmm. And we know from, from modern science that people who have synesthesia, they hear a sound and they see colors, right? And when you're speaking about the ancient Chinese and the ancient Japanese people's experience of nature, yes, vastly different from our experience of right. nature, whether you're and a modern Japanese person or a Chinese person, but definitely as a modern person yes. in the United States, yes. that synesthesia, that mysticism of, I, yes. I feel like in the Sandokai, they're really expressing that. Yeah. When we're in a concentrated body-mind state, synesthesia is possible. Yeah. And that's why the, the author is saying all the objects of the senses interact when these walls of mind are penetrated or they're dropped, the dropping off body-mind, that falling away of thinking mind. So the whole body-mind becomes one sensory organ. Yes. You know, I, I was publishing something that was kind of targeted for on Dogen that was kind of targeted for like a freshman college audience. And I mentioned the word synesthesia and the editor just took it out. And I said, why'd you take it out? Oh, too hard a word. I said, yeah, but it's a, actually a word in English that completely captures the point. So we can define it, but we got to keep that word in. So he, he did leave it in, but that's how removed we are from it. Like that would scare off the the freshmen, they become dropouts of college, right? One of the things I like to say is in my neighborhood, since the COVID, I kind of live near traffic, but it's kind of secluded from traffic. But one thing that happened post-COVID when there's a lot less traffic than on, on the big street that's nearby than there used to be, um, even in rush hour today, I think much less is like the sounds of the birds, the smells of the flowers, the presence of uh, ducks and other small creatures kind of scurrying around is is enhanced there's no question in my mind of it in a simple kind of walking around the block where i which i do in the morning the heightening of those senses and the intermixture of them becomes kind of an instant moment so how much more so if you're up in a heiji 
before power lines, before nuclear power plants, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas we could take some of what the ancient mystics said as a metaphor. Yeah. I find it to be more interesting to take it perhaps as uh, literal that this synesthesia of, of the whole body mind being one attuned sensory organ therefore allows for the synesthesia to happen. And isn't that, especially back then, those were the people who were the mystics. Those were the people, I mean, not everybody, of course, but I think that's just really fascinating because when the body-mind has that type of concentration, whole worlds are there. Our perceptual process slows, right? The neocortex sort of takes a back seat and the limbic system, the right brain becomes more dominant mm -hmm. and that the body becomes more as, as I've heard this neuro uh, scientist say more of a fluid, right? We're, we're fluid, mm -hmm. not, not static. And, and one of Dogen's phrases that I really like is you know, reality is icicle forming in a fire. Mm that flowing sense of life, which is of course, throughout his, all of his writings, yeah. as you're saying there, where you live in Miami, just with the reduction of the traffic noise during the pandemic, yeah. why do we discount those bodily experiences? We're so speaking of, you know, long time ago, there was that phrase talking head. <laughs> and yeah. I think not only the band, of course, which if everybody was as profound as the talking heads, that'd be wonderful. But the talking heads were the, our pundits who yeah. just above the body, above the neck. And, right. and, and Zen is a body practice. Zen, yeah. the transformation experience embodiment of the Dharma is below the neck. Not yeah. that wisdom, not that knowledge from the mind can't help. Of course it can. But this whole body sensing. Kind of ground up uh, approach. Yes, a ground up approach. Yeah. So we could even see maybe framing your Soto angel's vision as a type of synesthesia or some sort of hallucination. <laughs> and we discount that kind of uh, surreal perception and become so rational. Right. I think it's right. harmful. Well, you, you also get into the whole vast debate that took place in Japan, especially in sentient beings. Do all sentient beings preach the Dharma? Right. Mujo, Mujo Seppo. And, yeah. And insentient beings preach the Dharma. And can they, do they, must they? And, you know, I think based on what we're saying, based on your, your descriptions of it, even from a scientific point of view, starts to seem pretty realistic after all. As Zenju points out in her book, the higher knowledges and the supernatural powers that um, have been ascribed to shaman also mm -hmm. to Buddha, and also to Jesus. Yeah. The ability to walk on water, the omniscience, right? The ability to have that clairvoyance, knowing people's minds. It's quite fascinating to me. And, and I confess, since you started off with the vision, yeah. I've had my own experiences of clairvoyance at Tassahara in a deep trance mm -hmm. where the teacher was speaking during a session and the mm -hmm. words were just floating from the third eye right. as, as he spoke them. Mm -hmm. And I've not really conveyed that hardly to anybody. So maybe I'll edit that out. But okay. there was <laughs> this very deep yoga right. trance. And, right. and, I, and that was a very sliver of clairvoyance. It was just each moment, the, 
the word simultaneously arising, even though I'm not this person. Great, great. Yeah. So we're on the same page. <laughs> we need a better word than page. We're in the same cave of emptiness. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> well, right. why don't you just tell me which of the koans, koan or two you would like to explore? Because this koan practice, I am now becoming much more interested in it. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite koans is Wei Neng's Your Mind Moves koan. Mm-hmm. And if you want to talk about that one, that's great. Good, good. Yeah. I mean, there's so many to discuss. Let, let's stick with Wei Neng and the koan about the flag and the wind. And also Wei Neng's koan, and both are included in the uh, Gateless Gate, Mumon Khan collection of when he when he's being chased by monks after he takes over the temple. And they're both kind of very fascinating because of the way they portray Huenang. And also there is a kind of supernatural element in the, in the second case with the immovable robe that they talk about. I love that there's hundreds and thousands of koans and just about any Chan dialogue can become a koan. The number 1700 got smacked on there at some point, but that's kind of a relevant number. But it does kind of indicate like, hey, there's lots of these dialogues and stories and anecdotes out there. There's a bunch of famous ones that get retold and for good reason, because they're, they're just endlessly fascinating. Dogen mentioned in the fascicle, Inmo, suchness, the ringing, the same thing with the bell. Is the bell rung or is the, is the wind caused the bell to, to ring? And that was actually an early Indian Buddhist story that seems to be the precursor for the flag moving. It kind of follows the same theme. You have this dilemma, and how do you solve the dilemma in terms of the physical entities involved? And in Huynang's case, he, he zaps the people arguing, it's the mind. And the mind is, of course, a very uh, rich topic in, in Buddhism in general, the one mind, the universal mind, the, the mind of uh, of Tathagatagarbha or Buddha nature, the mind that encompasses all, all beings and, and of course all physical aspects as well. But what Dogen says when he talks about the case in the Inmo fascicle of the ringing of the bell, which is basically the same pattern as the flag, he said, and you know, this is so typical Dogen, he won't leave it stand usually the way other people have said it. He's always going to add something to it. And part of the koan commentary tradition that he saw in China, and I think, you know, to me, this is maybe the biggest influence of Dogen over all the other influences we talked about, is the idea of saying, when you look at these koans, if I had been there, this is what I would have said. Dogen says brilliantly there, it's not the mind that's moving or the mind that's ringing, it's the ringing that's ringing. Very simple point. And he mentions a similar point in some other fascicles as well, because Rujing wrote a poem about the sound of a bell. And, and he kind of reinterprets that poem in a couple of places. It's the ringing that's ringing. Yeah, it's the ringing that's ringing, or you could say it's the ringing of the ringing. In other words, there's just a phenomenon of ringing. Why label it one way or the other? Mind is just another abstraction that, that takes you away from just hearing synesthetically that phenomenon. It sounds to me as well that that's like the teaching for Baha'i, right? In the herd, there's just a herd. Yeah, 
like the dropping away of that self-reflection that's trying to discern what that sound yeah. is and all the dropping away of too much self-reflection that projects onto the reality what we want to what we want it to be we what it think it is and then takes away from the reality so at the moment of the ringing no human sound or thought is necessary at that moment which is every moment but at the same time when you come out of that moment then you want to express what it is that you heard so other people could hear it that way so how do you best say it? And Dogen comes up with the ringing of the ring. I'm reminded of Edgar Allan Poe's famous uh, poem, The Tintinabulation. Again, like a wordsmith genius who could come up with a word that's in the vocabulary to exactly capture that, that multifaceted sensation. So returning to then Wei Ning, yeah. startling the audience as, as a Zen adept should, yeah. saying it's not the flag that's moving, it's not yeah. the wind that's moving. It's the mind that moves. And yeah. then if we fast forward to Miaoshin, her teaching to those uh, 17 monks was mm -hmm. the flag's not moving, the wind's not moving, the mind's not moving. That mm -hmm. resonates more with what you're saying Dogen says in the right. Inmo fascicle, ringing is just ringing. Right. Yeah. The mind wants to demarcate cause and effect mm -hmm. when in fact, cause and effect are the manifestation of the fruition of Zenki. Right. Zenki has to be encompassed, you know, Zenki in, in that fascicle, but it's, it's similar to the passage in, in Genjo Koan, where they say it, it's cut off from before and after, but encompasses before and after. So it encompasses cause and effect, but it's not limited to anything you're going to say about cause and effect at that, at that very moment that that's happening, which is every moment, there's just that sensation that's occurring. And that sensation is the meeting point of mind and body, uh, self and other, the universe. The, and that's where the, that particular pole moving that particular boat, that small boat in that particular waterway is, is the whole universe acting, acting itself through. So if we think of the whole universe acting itself through as each and every phenomenon and each and every sensation, that's where your mind starts to get expanded, I think. When the, the self is no longer, so casting off of body-mind, when it occurs in our everyday activities, there's that lovely sense of the traffic noise is just traffic sound. Yeah. The bird song is just bird song thoughts are just thoughts and the cognized they're just a cognized there's yeah. not that as the buddha says he, the tathagata delights in non-proliferation mm -hmm. right yeah yeah that's a good way to put it and i guess if you take yourself to the point where the the traffic sounds are just as wonderful as the bird sounds well, that would be good <laughs> i have to try that out tomorrow morning Yes. Well, you know, it says sounds differ as pleasing or harsh, right? Right. So I right. think it's right. It's that neutrality is some, yeah. Even though there's a distinction between birdsong and, and horns, that one source, no distinction. And I think that's, what's most powerful for me yeah. is mm -hmm. that understanding or experience of that's extra saying it's pleasing or harsh or the, all the proliferation that might arise around a sound or any any sense perception is extra to 
the sense perception. Yes, yes, yes. And often results in um, vast amounts of suffering. Uh, true. <laughs> true. Well, as we uh, come to a close, uh, Stephen, I would love for you to summarize the value of Dogen's life and teaching to us modern day bodhisattvas and just modern day people. Thank you for the opportunity to say that. That's a tall task. I'm going to refer to another important Chinese uh, poet in a moment, but let me connect Dogen to that reference because we're talking about Dogen's words and his instructions on practice, all forms of the practice, especially shikantaza, but uh, everything else that goes with it, as kind of opening to that momentary yet lasting because it's, it's renewed moment to moment expansion of the, of the perception. Uh, so two things, actually. One about a Japanese rock garden near, near, near Miami. There was a Japanese community some years ago, and, and in its wake, has, there's been a, a, a tremendous museum and garden that, that exists. And they have a very authentic Japanese rock garden. And when I've taken people to visit there, whether they know much about Japan or whether they're very knowledgeable about Japan. And I point out the simple idea, which is like, hey, if you stand at a certain place facing the garden, you can, your peripheral vision is not going to take in. You know, it's kind of built so that your peripheral vision can't quite take it in. As you allow your peripheral vision to try to enhance itself in order to take in the full extent of the width of the rock garden, you can feel something that's like... She, Shinjin Datsuraku, or that's like the feeling of being out in the boat in the middle of the sea. I mean, all of a sudden there's like something happens in there. Even though the rock garden is more associated with Rinzai, it's quite quite similar point to what Dogen is getting at. So let me let me end with a reference to the Chinese poet Su Shi, who is known to Dogen circles because he wrote the poem that's in the Keisei Sanshoku fascicle, Sound of the Valley Streams, Colors of the Mountains. And Dogen comments on that on that poem where he was having an all night vigil and he saw the, the mountains as the Buddha's body and the sounds of the stream as the Buddha's tongue. And I think that, you know, captures a lot of what we're trying to say. And Susha was a very interesting figure in the ten hundreds because he was a political guy. He, he got into trouble with the, with the mainstream government. He was exiled for many years, but he wrote 2,700 poems. He also created the distinctive Chinese inkbrush art form. He's not always given enough credit for that. He was in conversation with Zen masters and he practiced Zen to some extent, but he was not, he was never a Zen monk. But he he took a lot of boat rides because he was in exile and he was kind of traveling around southern China. And he loved to travel and he wrote travel diaries also. And one of his poems says waking up in the night, um, in the middle of the night on a boat. So he's riding a boat, he's asleep. And he, to sum up the poem briefly, he he thinks he hears the sound of rain, and he kind of gets up to look out. And it's not actually the sound of rain. It's just like the reeds kind of rustling in the wind. But now that he's awake, he can't help but look out at the scene. And it seems like everything else is asleep. The fish are asleep. The other people riding the boat are asleep. But then as he's looking, he sees a fish scurry off because it's probably aware that he's looking at it and it's kind of disrupted it. So, so he's, he's thinking of all that interaction, but he says still there's a moment where there's a tableau in front of him. There's just this spectacular scene in front of him of just nature, including people just as it is 
without any real disturbance or anything intruding. And then all of a sudden it's interrupted because the sun comes, the, they're sounding the, the, the drum on the, on the boat, the, the boatsmen are calling out to each other, people start going fishing, all this activity comes about. And, and so it leaves us with the question, what was the real truth? Was it that moment, maybe it was an hour or so before everything got started, or was it after everything got started, keeping in mind the perception that you had before everything got started, kind of filtering those two together. So that's, that's, that's a passage that's a little bit separate from Dogen, but that's the kind of writing, I think, in the Chinese uh, Zen world, even though this poet was not a monk himself, that it comes into the flavor of Dogen. And, you know, it's helpful to take that into account. A phrase that arises for me as you recount that poem and the experience is just the dream within the dream. Yeah, that's one of the most fascinating phrases. Yeah. Explaining a dream within a dream. <laughs> Explaining yeah. a dream within a dream. Maybe yeah. that could be the theme of our next Spark Zen podcast conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That'd be really wonderful. Yeah. Well, Stephen, thank you so, so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I always thoroughly enjoy our conversations about Dogen Zen and yeah. life. Yeah, thank you. I had a great time. So I look forward to the next time. Thank you for listening to the Spark Zen Podcast. I hope you found this conversation illuminating and engaging. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to my Spark Zen Substack newsletter and follow me on Twitter at SparkZen. The opening and closing music is courtesy of my friend Jeffrey Cantu Ledesma and Alexis Georgopoulos. 